Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Mythgard Movie Club. Tonight we're talking about Night of the Living Dead. Very excited for this one. This has uh, been a favorite, uh, kind of one we've been looking forward to all year. Um, but before we get into our discussion, uh, first wanted to just introduce ourselves. So hi, I'm Curtis Wyant. I am one of the co-hosts for uh, the Mythgard Movie Club here. I also co-host a podcast with uh, Cat uh, on Cat and Chris TV Review, where we talk about television shows and all all of that kind of fun stuff. Um, yeah, and uh, that's me. All right, um, I'm Ashley Thomas. I am graduate of Signum University. Um, my day job is I uh, I'm a freelance writer. I go by the handle the Nerdy Blogger. Um, uh, on my blog nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, I write about uh, whatever I'm geeking out about at the time. So I like movies, love film, uh, excited to talk about Night of the Living Dead. Hi everybody again, welcome back. Uh, Dave Maddock here, um, also uh, Signum grad and uh, super excited to be talking about one of my favorite movies tonight, Night of the Living Dead. And I'm Kat Sass, um, the other co-host of uh, Mythgard Movie Club and Kat and Kurt's TV Review. And I think we're a full panel of Signum graduates here, which is kind of cool. Cheers. So thanks, thanks everybody for joining us again. Yeah, we've got a pretty good group here tonight. I'm looking forward to it. So before uh, we get into it, just wanted to make sure we got through some announcements. Uh, for those who have not seen the copious number of messages going out recently about TextMoot, uh, now you will know that TextMoot is coming up in January. The call for papers is uh, coming up very shortly, so if you're planning on going to that, you should get that. Uh, you should get your paper or panel or presentation uh, uh, in there now. Um, we've also got a number of new moots coming up. Um, now, I should I should note here that the names and dates on these are still sort of all up in flux. So uh, up in flux, that's not a thing, but um, in flux, and so. I'm going to mention them, but note that like they may change. So uh, if you haven't heard, Sunshine Moot, formerly called Gator Moot, um, is happening, uh, we believe, in March. Uh, Netter Moot in the Netherlands, which is really cool, uh, is happening. Um, I believe that one's pretty pretty well established to be happening in April, kind of around the same time that London Moot was last year. Uh, Minute Moot, um, that's one whose name might be changing, uh, but that's going to be happening in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, likely in the early fall. Um, probably sometime around Hobbit Day. Um, and uh, Kiwi Moot, the, the one that we're really excited about, happening almost exactly a year from now, around Thanksgiving uh, weekend next year in 2019. At least that's the plan as of now. Uh, but again, don't hold me to that. And if you have questions, you can ask Corey or someone else, because those were the dates that were given to me like yesterday. So. Um, yeah, and then also we're uh, actively enrolling right now, registering for the spring semester at Signum University. Uh, really cool, excited about the new um, English, the, the, the life and times of the English epic class. Um, there's a lot of great stuff. And what's really cool about that one is it really goes, it like actually starts before the English epic with like some classical tales and, and things that uh, many English epics refer to or are built upon, um, but even goes right up until modern day. So it's not just sort of like a single set time period in like the 19th century or something like that. Um, although that would also be a very cool class of just like 19th century English literature. But 
this spans quite a bit and kind of uh, tells a broader story there. So that's really cool. And then of course we've got some of our flex classes coming back. Um, Berlin Fliegers, Tolkien's World of Middle Earth, which uh, you know the the Feshrift uh, as a tribute to her was just published like this week came out. Um, so I'm sure there's plenty of good stuff in there that maybe you could, if you're planning to uh, to read that, maybe you could take the class right along with it. Um, Literary Copernicus on H.P. Lovecraft's work. Um, I know we're a little late because like October is like Lovecraft month, right? But um, this is a, a great class that uh, Dr. Sturgis, uh, you know, has lectures on, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft and all of his works there. Uh, Norse Myths and Sagas. Um, this is in translation, so you don't have to, this isn't like an Old Norse translation class or anything. You can take it if you don't know any Old Norse. You could also take it if you do old, know Old Norse. Um, and then Introduction to Anglo-Saxon, uh, if you're interested in learning that language and maybe want to read Beowulf in the original, not the original Klingon, the original Anglo-Saxon. Um, and then, of course, if you don't know by now, Corey's been going through uh, Le Mort d'Arthur uh, in uh, Mythgard Academy. And I don't. I gave up like after the fifth week because I just I couldn't even keep up with the fairly slow pace he was keeping. Uh, that's a personal issue, not anything to do with uh, all of that. But um, we will at some point, I am told, in early 2019, be starting Sauron defeated, the next uh, history of Middle Earth class. So keep eyes on that. And then of course, uh, once we're partway through that, we'll probably be around time for nominating the next round of books. So who knows. Uh, what what else could be in store for 2019? Early 2019, right? Yeah, early first half. I, I would bet first half. We could sure. call that early, right? Sure, sure. As opposed to late. Um, it's like how yeah. you're in your early 30s until you're 35, right? <laughs> right. Um, Cool. All right. So just wanted to remind everybody that um, our next and final uh, movie club will be on new Fantastic Beasts movie, The Crimes of Grindelwald, uh, which comes out um, today. Today is the premiere. Um, so you're all here. So I guess you're not seeing it at the theater tonight, but hopefully everybody will see it soon. And um, and we're going to talk very well. It very well could have like taken <laughs> you know, like about a little conflict. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, yeah, right. Okay, so that uh, is December thirteenth. Um, that we're going to be talking about that. So that'll be our last um, meeting of the year. And then, so you know, right now up until uh, December twelfth, which is the day before uh, that movie club, we have our twenty nineteen poll open to help us choose the quote, older movies. Um, we do have a few um, new movies that are coming out in theaters next year that we're planning on uh, having panelists talk about, but we wanted some help from attendees to narrow down uh, the movies that are not new releases. So we have two from uh, the last, uh, what, six decades-ish, and um, this is the current rankings. So um, if you're not happy with it and you haven't voted yet, please go do so. Um, I submitted my vote not too long ago and was trying to influence some of these uh, <laughs> poll numbers. So um, I encourage everybody um, to make sure they do that, especially um, notice the Blade Runner never ending story race, which is currently yeah. tied. It's so, a tight race. Um, 
So I'm really interested to see where that goes. And a few of the others are um, pretty close too. So um, that'll be very exciting to see what wins. And even, so I mean, we've, so we've had a total of about 35 people voted so far. I mean, even the ones that are like fairly far apart, like the furthest one apart is what, like eight votes? Like that's not that many. So like, if you have some friends, you want to you know, tell them, tell them about movie club and get them to vote. Like you could, you could, you know, have a, we could have a Cinderella story here. We're not going to talk about Cinderella next year at all, but you could have a Cinderella story here in the, in the polls. All right, so Night of the Living Dead. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess, yes. Well, Sorry, we're ahead. both starting. Um, I feel like it, with some of these, you know, classics, a great place to start is always the kind of how did you come to this movie question? Because more often than not, I find that on these panels, um, we get a really diverse range of answers to that question. There's always somebody who this is their favorite movie of all time. And then there's somebody who's like, I watched this for the first time last Tuesday. Um, so I'm curious what everybody's relationship to this film is. And I'll start by saying I'm the one who never saw it before. Um, there were certain things, certain scenes and ideas that I was um, familiar with. And then there were certain things that I was not at all prepared for like the ending. So um, <laughs> I was yeah, pretty thrilled and, and happy that I came to this with the major, major stuff unspoiled. So that was fun. Yeah, I saw it, I don't, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw it in college as, as an undergrad. And I'm pretty sure I saw it at Dave's house actually. Um, that sounds right. <laughs> he had seen it before me and, and was talking it up. And yeah, I mean, yeah, that ending, like nobody can pre prepare you for the ending. Like, I, I feel like, I mean, I didn't know what was coming up at the end when I first saw it. And, but I feel like even if I did, like you still don't understand sort of the magnitude of like how things play out and yeah, uh, with that. So we'll definitely talk about the ending tonight. Uh, quite a bit, I'm sure. But yeah, I I I like the movie. I mean, I think it's it's very good. I'm also a big fan of The Walking Dead and a number of other zombie films, just sort of in general. So, and I've seen most, if not all, of the sequels to this. So, um, definitely sort of up my alley. I see we're already getting um, some responses from uh, folks in the in the attendee list here to uh, to provide some of their feedback. We, we got at least one who really, really did not like it. Um, but hopefully, hopefully we've got some others who uh, did and, and uh, whether you did or didn't is fine. And we'll, we can talk about the reasons for why you did. Well, I'll try to convince you that it's awesome. Um, I came to uh, to the movie uh, through Stephen King. Uh, so back in the day, uh, I was a huge Stephen King fan, read all of his stuff. And um, he made a film with Romero called Creepshow. Uh, so that was that was how I learned about Romero and basically, you know, Stevie King talking him up and saying how awesome he was. So I went back and, and watched it and and was blown away and since watched, you know, the whole uh, cadre of, of films that Romero made after that. And I've uh, been a been a fan of his uh, his zombie films ever since. And uh, the the modern resurgence of the zombie genre with with The Walking Dead obviously as being a big part of that. Uh, 
uh, I think is is great. Uh, it's a I think a a great modern genre for our times, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Well, um, I used to not care that much for horror films. Now I'm all like, let's watch all horror movies ever, um, with the exception of ones that are just I don't care for gratuitous slashy stuff. But uh, anyway. Um, the first time I saw Not a Living Dead was about 2010. Uh, I, what I did was, um, at the time, my big thing was I would psych myself up to watch one horror movie a year uh, on Halloween. And that was the one I chose in 2010, was Not a Living Dead. Um, and I was actually really impressed with just how um, good it, it still was. How, like, I was still creeped out, even though it was a black and white, cheesy movie. Sure, this is not going to be scary. Oh, no, that was actually kind of creepy. That was cool. Um, so yeah, uh, and then this year I got, I got to see in the theater. Um, one of the local theaters here does uh, retro horror all during October. And so this is my first time getting to see it on the big screen. That was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. So we have uh, some, uh, Steven says that he, uh, his first time seeing it was uh, when Rift Tracks riffed it. Um, that would be an interesting way to watch. <laughs> oh no. Especially for the first time. Um, can you I ever recall and watch the riff tracks now? Uh, um, yeah, and uh, yeah, they're coming to get you, Barbara. They are. In fact, that's the uh, <laughs> name of one of our slides coming up here. Um, but yeah, kind of before. So obviously, this movie and Romero in general has had a huge influence on sort of uh, zombies, and and it's it's one of those things where like when you know when they copy him it's obviously an influence but it's also like when they explicitly don't copy him it's still in his influence right so it's like one way or another he pushed things in certain directions um but what i thought was interesting uh was that even looking back to some of the, the all of the movies sort of listed here are zombie or zombie-esque um because like uh thinking of like the last man on earth right uh based on um uh, Richard Matheson's uh, I Am Legend, it's like, are they zombies? Are they vampires? Are they kind of both? And there's like this whole virus thing there, but it, it kind of has, you know, a lot of similar elements to it. Um, going back, I thought it was really interesting that in the, in the 30s and 40s, you get these zombie films that are, uh, you know, sort of the, the more traditional, I think, literarily speaking of like voodoo or magical or mystical sort of basis for these but then starting right around the 1950s and into the into the 60s you start getting um all these movies that have more sci-fi elements and um sort of causes to them so like um one of the early ones there like the creature with the atom brain is like this this and i haven't seen it but just based on the description is this film where you know the zombie is like literally someone you know like a scientist almost frankenstein like you know gives it like this atomic brain and that's how it sort of um goes about doing it zombie things and then you have sort of the virus and the alien which are more sci-fi sort of elemental causes um and and you know so there's plan nine which is like one of those like universally you know called the worst movies ever and and i know cat's smiling um just this is like the third movie club where we've referenced yeah <laughs> so i feel like we, this is an obligatory thing at this point um 
Yeah, although Astro Zombies apparently also has the title for worst movie ever, so I don't know. That, I, I don't hear that one as much, so I guess I don't know if uh, there's a populist, uh, you know, aspect to that. But anyway, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know that. Just curious, like, have any of you seen any of these, like, pre Romero zombie movies? Um, are you familiar with any other, even like maybe literature stuff too? Because I, I, after like seeing this, I kind of wanted to go look at like, are there sci-fi and fantasy stories too? I mean, there's obviously I Am Legend, um, but like beyond that, is there you know a similar trend of the move from like sort of the mystical to the sci-fi explanation for these types of stories? Well, I've seen The Last Man on Earth, and I, I've read I've read um, I Am Legend as well. And my introduction to that though was the Will Smith uh, I Am Legend. And uh, when I read the book, I was really surprised. Like, oh, these were vampires, not zombies, or maybe they're zompires. I don't know. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, that that was just really intriguing to me to find out I had completely either either that was how that film in particular chose to portray them or I just completely misunderstood that they were supposed to be vampires. I mean, either explanation is so. Yeah, I'm the same. I've um, I've seen the Vincent Price. I've seen both I Am Legend ad adaptations and there's there's a third one mm -hmm. actually with, I, I want to say Charlton Heston called the Omega Man. Omega Man. Which I, I haven't seen. Um, oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, I've I've listened to interviews with Romero, and he cites I Am Legend as an, an as an influence to the screenplay. Um, I haven't I have seen bits and pieces of some of these uh, older films from the '40s, uh, since most of them are available uh, on public in public domain, and you can find them on YouTube and, and in other places. Um, they're kind of hokey, as most films from that era are. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that um, and I, I don't know if it starts with with uh, with Richard Matheson or, but right around that time, you definitely see this transition from zombies being monsters that are explicitly created by men. So all of these old or, or but humans, right? So, uh, uh, you know, someone does a magic ritual or something and creates this zombie from uh, often not even a dead body, but like someone who might, you know, perhaps thinks they're dead or something like that. Um, so the monster is explicitly created by humans to this this conversion um, in the 60s of this zombie that it's just something that happens to you, right? You you are infected by a virus or something comes from outer space and gets you and turns you into this thing. Um, and I also thought it was interesting um, up in the corner of our slide there, we, we say that there's the film uh, Night of the Living Dead had some earlier working titles, uh, Night of Anubis, The Night of the Flesh Eaters. Um, and uh, Romero um, also uh, said that uh, initially, you notice in the first film that you know, they never used the word zombie. Uh, he didn't think of them as zombies in that first film, and it was only um, it was only after the fact, as as his audience interpreted them as zombies, that they came to be um, essentially called zombies in in future films or whatever. So I thought that was interesting, kind of transitional period for the idea of a zombie and what is it and um, and Romero's movie kind of seems to sit right in the middle there of uh, reinterpreting this uh, this idea of what a zombie is. Yeah, so I, I was searching around today and found this article called um, Philosophy of the Living Dead at the Origin of the Zombie Image by um, James McFarland. It was in the Journal of Cultural Critique 
so he kind of traces the origin of uh, the modern, I guess, the kind of Walking Dead um, prototype of, of the zombie today. And, and his suggestion is that it starts with Night of the Living Dead. But what's like interesting in terms of some of these older movies and the source material is he kind of starts with the um, zombie image coming originally from the folklore of Haiti. And so he, he talks about um, that kind of reaching America because of the American military occupation from 1915 to 1934. And the original idea in the folklore there being that these were animated or reanimated corpses um, that would perform endless labor and would were brought back to life by kind of sorcery, as Dave was saying, which I think is really interesting given the racial overtones of this movie to kind of find that in the original sure. zombie mythology, there were kind of racial and, and colonial aspects to that. But then what changes is that rather than being corpses that kind of reanimate and do what they're told are sort of obedient slaves forever, um, the, the break here being that these explicitly do not do what they're supposed to do. They, you know, revolt and attack you and try to kill everybody and eat everything. And that being, you know, so we're kind of taking the the image of what we think of zombie looks like, but kind of completely changing and reversing the motivation behind it. Um, which like, again, there might've been some of these precursors, but it seems that what we think of as the, the movie zombie today sort of originates with George Romero, even though he doesn't use the word zombie, which is mm. ironic. If you yeah. want something, oh, sorry. If you want something more on the um, kind of the original line of zombie, uh, Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow is a good example of that. When did that come out, do you know? Uh, let me look. I believe it was in the late seventies or early eighties, but I will double check. And I do want to just point out that the Heinlein reference in the title of this slide, I did not put that in there. I assume Cat <laughs> did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, I'm, I'm infecting others with my Heinlein virus, I guess. Um, Growing. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I just, I just, I do think it's really interesting, though. I mean, so obviously none of these pre, you know, nineteen sixty eight films. I think the the Astro Zombies actually did come out the same year as this, but um, Night of the Living Dead actually came out like late in the year, like around this time, holiday time. Um, so it was, you know, kind of right at the right at the tail end of the year. But um, you know, other than maybe the Last Man on Earth because of its later, you know, manifestations and the popularity of, of the book, I think probably is what, what has brought that one in. And again, like, as we said, that's, it's sort of dubious as to whether that's actually zombie or vampire or a mixture. Um, and then Plan 9 from Outer Space, like, is sort of popular now, but wasn't at the time. Like, it's popular for, you know, it's so bad it's good kind of way. Like, it's, it's come to be known that, but I, I believe that was until, like, the 70s or 80s that it, really was um you know became that way so you know obviously none of these had the same influence as romero did and and again other than last man on earth which dave you said you know romero referenced explicitly 
it's hard to say like how much of these actually influence him. But um, again, just kind of thought that was interesting, that progression. Um, so I did want to talk about, though, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Um, what, so in thinking about like, sort of how we do think of zombies, like obviously Romero changes things to some degree um, in, in how the zombies act and stuff. But I found it interesting that there were some things that they did that, you know, today we think of sort of as a Romero-esque zombie that actually may not be accurate. Um, so I'm thinking like, especially this fir the first guy here um, that we see in the graveyard um, who does come after Barbara and kills, um, oh shoot, her brother. What's her brother's Johnny. name? Johnny. 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 Um, everyone remembered that except me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, when he moves, like these are technically slow zombies, but he moves pretty fast for a slow zombie. Like, this is someone who's maybe very freshly dead, right? And doesn't have problems with like rotted joints or whatever. And um, just even seeing him sort of like shuffle run um, or stumble run like after her was like kind of surprising in, in my rewatch here. Cause you know, you do just sort of get in the mind of like, oh, Romero's like a big fan of the slow zombie. And he is, he's said many times, he doesn't like things like 28 days later where you have these quote unquote zombies that are from a virus and aren't truly dead. And, you know, they're like running around and full of rage and that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I feel like it's kind of splitting some hairs here in, in certain senses. So wanted to kind of get your thoughts. Like, was there any, well, one, do you agree with that? Or, or do you disagree with sort of that type of thing? Um, and what are maybe some other observations or, you know, things that we could say about how you know, the zombies in this film act and, and react and whether that sort of meets our current expectations or how that, you know, may have changed, uh, you know, over the years. Well, I think, um, I think there's a mundane explanation and then there's a fan explanation that I see for this. I mean, the mundane explanation is they hadn't codified these rules yet, right? So like, um, I think, uh, uh, I, I don't know offhand whether that was an early uh, uh, part that was filmed or if it was filmed later in, in the filming process or not, that the early scene in the graveyard. Um, but, uh, but clearly, uh, you know, there, I think, I think what happened was, uh, that they, they hadn't really worked out in details, like what the zombie rules are. Right. And, and that's only kind of worked out as, as, uh, more films are made and so on. Um, but I think a funner explanation is um, is that, like you said, he's a, a freshly dead zombie and therefore, you know, has uh, uh, a bit more mobility and, and perhaps other uh, skills that that he's lost. And there's some evidence for that in the film. Like you, you do see him, for example, milling about the house. Um, uh, you know, after they're all trapped in the farmhouse, there you can there are, there are opportunities where you see him out there kind of milling about, and he's a lot more stiff. He's not doing a heck of a lot. And this is a guy who just ran all the way from the cemetery to the farmhouse. So you would think, oh, you know, he's mobile, but now all of a sudden he's out there kind of all stiff and, and not doing a heck of a lot. And um, um, so I think I think you can infer there if you if you want to stay within within the universe that that yeah, like as rigor mortis sets in or whatever, like he he loses some of that early early mobility that he had at the start of the film. 
Well, and I'm not like a slow zombie purist. Like I like 28 Days Later. I think those fast zombies are terrifying. Um, and so there's something just, I feel like the slow zombie works better in, in a crowd when you, what's terrifying about the slow zombie is it's like that we were talking when we did our she discussion about, you know, C.S. Lewis's different kinds of fear and horror that it, it's, it's not better or worse. It's just a different quality of fear. And what's scary about slow zombies is not their speed, but their volume, the numbers, the fact that it's just this insatiable, you know, crowd of, you know, a plague of things coming at you. Um, and that's, yeah, I guess it is kind of surprising that in this sort of prototypical zombie movie, the first glimpse we get is, is one single zombie who isn't the kind of cliche kind of slack jawed, you know, blank stare. It's like, there's something really uh, urgent about him. Like, you know, he's really determined to get these, you know, to get these kids. And I, there's something more, I don't, like desperate and primal about him that made that opening scene really terrifying. Um, and I feel like you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know this was a zombie movie from that first scene. I feel, you know, even with 28 Days Later and some of these others, you get sort of a sense that there's been some sort of disaster ahead of time, you know, like he wakes up in a hospital and the world is deserted or, you know, or you hear about the spread of some virus before you see something, but just the kind of having this guy just quickly jump on you out of nowhere um, is such a terrifying way to begin the story. I think for me, the, in in the horror genre, just in general, it's there's something um, unnerving about having some something or someone pursue you, but they're not running. Um, it's like it doesn't matter. To me, that kind of feels like it doesn't matter what you do, they're going to get you anyway. Um, I just did um, a watch through of all the Halloween films, minus the zo Rob Zombie ones, and. The, there's something very creepy about Michael Myers because he, you know, with a couple of exceptions, he never runs. Um, I think um, for for this film, that was kind of uh, a thing that kind of gave me a sense of dread. Like these things are just kind of, you know, shambling <laughs> towards you, not moving real quick. Um, you know, makes me f uh, feel like there's, you know, no matter what I do, there's not going to be a, a way to escape. So Stephen in the in the chat says, um, "Fast zombies strike me as more animalistic or demonic. It can mm -hmm. be scary, but in a, diff a completely different way from animated death coming for you." Um, so, I kept finding quotes from George Romero talking about the original kernel of this story being allegorical. I don't think he ever explicitly states what he wanted it to be an allegory for, but he kept using that word sort of over and over. And I wonder if this idea of having relentless animated death coming toward you, does that kind of give it a more abstract or intellectual kind of fear as opposed to something that's physically a little bit more visceral? Hmm. I think there's something to that. And um, although the, the early, let's call them mid-range speed zombie at the, in the cemetery, um, <laughs> Is, is perhaps not my 
Second Gear Zombie. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Second, second Gear <laughs> Zombie is maybe not not as canon as I would like him to be. Um, I do I do think there is something to to what you said about Romero. Um, uh, you know, having some having some meaning in the slow zombie, but having the mid-range zombie at the start, I actually think in w one of the ways that it works is uh, drawing us into the story as uh, as we we get little bits and pieces of of information about what's going on, and he's just he's he's normal enough that you think okay, like maybe he's a murderer or you know who knows you know, what he's doing. But you don't you don't immediately think this guy is clearly a dead guy who come back to life and he's going to eat you. Um, so it, it has the effect of saying, OK, there's clearly something off about this guy, but you don't know what it is. Um, and uh, I think the fact that he's not like totally slow um, and shambling helps helps draw you into that um, and, and keep you a little bit on your toes as to not knowing what's going on in that early scene. Um, so so. I think it, it can work, I think, in, in the context of, uh, of the film. Well, I, I think, too, something um, that I thought about as you were speaking, um, the, the first zombie that we see, his costume, to me, evokes um, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, and, you know, of course, that's, I mean, think about it, Frankenstein's monster is, you know, reanimated dead, so zombie. Yeah, not that far off. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, specifically about the, the guy in the beginning, um, you know, we first see him in a cemetery, right? And he's in this, like, suit, and he's sort of, like, you know, head down, like, kind of, kind of shambling, whatever. And you just think, like, oh, sad guy, you know, at a cemetery. Like, he's mourning someone or just lost someone or whatever. Like, you're not, you know, I mean going to a movie these days titled Night of the Living Dead might tip off the audience now. But I, I wonder even if the audience at the time would have thought that that guy in particular was a zombie, right? Um, and again, I mean, you know, we, we did just see a bunch of like previous, you know, lead ups to that. But it, I, I do wonder like how much of the audience at the time really had any any real idea of like, or, or or singular idea of like what a zombie like was there a canonical type of zombie like this is what a zombie should be and so you really don't necessarily know and we'll I mean we have some audience reaction stuff later especially around the ending um, but yeah it would be that's actually something that um, I wish I had kind of looked up a little bit more about just to see like what were people's expectations going into this because I, I get the feeling that like probably at the time there wasn't a whole lot of real idea of what the like of what exactly a living dead person would act like um and so some of the other things that um you know was just thinking about while watching the movie is uh, like you see some of them like have tools like like the little girl uses like a spade or something right from in the basement and um, there's like one who's carrying like a table leg at one point and that kind of thing. And I think like like today, you don't really think about that kind of thing. And I wonder how much of that is more from like the earlier, um, like Kat, you were talking about like the sort of Haitian idea of like zombies as like 
you know, workers, like people who do things, like they would know how to use, you know, basic tools and, and, you know, build things and, you know, have some sort of independent kind of thought to be able to accomplish certain tasks. I mean, they would still sort of ultimately be controlled by someone. Um, but, but there's, you know, you have to like, know how to use a hammer to use a hammer and you have to be able to like, know where to put it and how to hit things and all of that kind of things. If, if they're going to be actual, like, you know, useful servants <laughs> in some way. Um, and so, you know, there are some of those, uh, those sorts of things. And, and I know like later Romero and some of his um, later, you know, uh, films in this, uh, you know, living dead series, he does like, like the zombies do sort of like develop a communication system and that kind of thing too. Um, which I saw that like the walking dead is like doing this season as well. Like they're starting to like have some of those like evolved zombies kind of um, ideas in there, which is kind of, kind of interesting. But anyway, uh, not to get on that, but just, I feel like there's some other things that sort of, I wanted to say like subvert our expectations, but, Again, like I'm not sure what the expectations at the time were, and they can't really be subversions because they're like retroactive or retrospective expectations, not actual expectations based on what the movie itself brought about. Right. Yeah. Well, things well, that I, things that I think of as subversive might not have been in the time. Like we right. were looking back to these, you know, '50s and '60s sci-fi movies where. Um, of course the the thing originates from like the space race because that's like fear of of mm. of uh what's coming in from outer space and nuclear war and and radiation and fallout like that's what's giving us all these crazy movies with giant spiders attacking people and you know things falling apart at home whereas now when i think of zombies i think of the Walking Dead because of George Romero film. Um, so it sort of has come full circle and suddenly what was probably a little more, um, I don't know, guessable in the day seems more surprising and subversive now to have it actually be a virus that comes from this Venus probe. Yeah, and, and Romero's good in the film as well of not really, I mean, you you can as a as an audience member you can kind of discount that as you like like it's it's offered up as a possible explanation i suppose but without really any sort of strong um certainty about it right it's a it's a news broadcast is for the most part where we get that information and you know i think we've all had the experience especially now in the fake news era of you know knowing that that just because you heard it on the radio it doesn't necessarily make it true or on the TV, as the case may be, and so um, uh, I think that's it's an interesting uh, uh, way that that the the film presents that information, where we as an as an audience member can choose to care about it if we want or not, and it really doesn't make it, it really doesn't matter, right? At the end of the day, they're they're all stuck in a house, and these guys are coming at them, and they want to eat their flesh, and does it matter whether they were infected from Venus or not? Like it, it's not really, co it, it doesn't really factor into the decisions that you're about to make, you know, whether to set somebody on fire or, you know, 
bash their brains in to get away, right? It's just not relevant to to the actual thing. So it, there's an interesting disconnect there where I don't know if this, you know, if he's trying to make a comment about about this or if, if it's, uh, you know, just a storytelling device. But um, I find it interesting that the explanation while provided is is not really relevant to the story. I know for me, at least it was helpful, like, I, I want to have some context for why, you know, the dead are giving up walking around and trying to eat my brains. Um, so uh, for me, at least that that was, you know, it didn't matter to me that it didn't actually play out in the ultimate outcome of the film. Um, I just wanted to have some kind of reason why. I mean, it could have been said, you know, something absurd. They all ate, you know, Cheerios for breakfast and that's why they became zombies. I don't know. Um, you know, but that would have been fun. Yeah, zombies. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting is that the information that they give you, um, the, they don't give you the one piece of information that is the most important to you. Namely, that if somebody dies, they're going to come back as a zombie. Like, that's mm -hmm. the one piece of information that actually matters to you in that situation. And it's the one piece of information you, they don't actually get from the broadcasts. Did they not? I thought there was something in there about um, you should definitely burn the bodies right away. Um, yeah, yeah, it's alluded so maybe to. Maybe it's sort of implied, but they don't. Yeah, over, yeah maybe that's, that's that was true. a stronger warning in my memory, but maybe I'm remembering it wrong. That's true. They do. Um, um, I could be. I could be over. Uh, uh, um, you know, misremembering as well, but I think they that's as close as they come. Yeah, they're like well, burn the bodies, you don't want to touch that kind of thing. Yeah. They could probably state it a lot. It the the way you're putting it, that's just one piece of this whole kind of ongoing bit of information. Whereas really that should be the only piece that matters is yeah. what to do practically, what should you be doing? Um and that's just kind of, if it's mentioned at all, it's sort of in passing among all the other speculative bits of information that they happen to be broadcasting about. So you kind of can easily gloss over it or half listen or not realize the significance of that. Mm -hmm. um, I did kind of enjoy though, like the slow burn of all of the bits of exposition, especially because I was curious to see to what extent does this conform to the rules as we understand them today? And how is it establishing those rules and that sort of thing? So it was kind of, I wasn't expecting that. And that was interesting to see how it, it's like every 20 minutes or so you get a radio broadcast or a piece of the news and it gives you some new bit of information that, and so you're slowly accumulating all of these. Now they could be A, not super relevant or be, you know, unreliable. So there's that. But um, but in terms of the audience establishing the sort of genre genre rules of how a zombie works, it kind of does walk you through it piece by piece, like every so often throughout the film. Yeah. And um yeah, and you sort of have to think about like the obvious differences between the the media of you know the 1960s versus today with the ever-present, you know, stream of too much information and fake news and all of that. Um, Cause like the one thing that kind of struck me funny was like um, the one part of, I can't remember if it was radio or television broadcasts where, where they say like, oh, you know, all the TV and radio stations have pooled our resources to make sure that we stay on the air, you know, 24 hours a day. And it's like, oh wait, 
yeah, there was a time. Yeah, I mean, even in my lifetime, which I I'm not old enough to remember the '60s, but you know, there was a time when like TV stations didn't play at all hours of the night, and there weren't 24-hour you know news uh, cable access you know channels and that kind of thing. And just thinking of that idea of like, yeah, like you know, what is this level of sort of national or at least regional crisis? Because that's the other thing. I'm not entirely. They never make it quite clear how, what the extent of this is, hmm. right? Like, how local is this problem? I mean, you get to the point where, okay, if it's a virus or radiation from outer space, then it's probably global, but they never quite make that clear either. Like, is this, like, if I can get to the next town, am I safe? Or is it like, you know, whatever. Now, later movies gets in, gets into those ideas. Yeah. Um, assuming that we're in the same world as, uh, you know, as this one, but um, yeah, it just it's it's that whole idea of like just a different type of media and news experience, uh, you know, at the time that that does make the slow trickle. I feel like, you know, be more authentic. I'm, I'm sure it seemed authentic at the time too, but. Um, even the things of like, okay, you know, the president has holed up in the White House with all of his counselors and wait, why are there people from, you know, the space agency there? And like, you know, talking about, I don't even, I guess it was NASA, but they didn't say that. It was like, why are like space scientists, like like space scientist is a title, right? Like why are space scientists at the White House? What could this possibly have to do with earthbound, you know, zombie ghoul well they didn't say gobby they say they, they do say ghoul at one point um you know ghouls you know rising from the dead what what could the possible connection between these two things be um which in that respect i mean we do still have that level of sort of speculation in the news there's just a lot more of it i feel like today um than than maybe at that point but um well, yeah. and, and in today's climate watching it, I feel like, I don't know what's more terrifying, getting a constant stream of unreliable information or being cut off with no information at all. I mean, that's kind of like to cast ourselves back sure. to a world that we can either barely remember or can't relate to at all. Just the idea of they're cut off in this farmhouse with no way to contact anybody. Um, no Twitter, no Facebook. It's horrifying. Um. <laughs> That's the horror right there. But the, horror right there. the uh, one other thing on the news before we move on, the um, interesting fact. So the the film um, was was um, uh, was filmed in the Pittsburgh area. That's where the the film uh, filmmakers lived, and uh, the guy who uh, played the newscaster uh, in the film was actually a local newscaster, and uh, several of oh, okay. the of the uh, uh, news scenes where, you know, they cited real towns in the area and so on, such that when this had, uh, you know, was broadcast in the area, um, local television stations and such, you know, had to put disclaimers on there to let people know that this wasn't actually happening because they were worried that there would be another War of the Worlds kind of thing. Yeah, very, so, or yeah. It's, it's very War of the Worlds and it's very War of the Worlds in the kind of explanation too of, of like, this is about space, viruses and space invasions in a way. Um, and the kind of horror element, like the body horror of the infection and everything, 
being kind of, you know, originating in outer space is kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a funny other connection. Uh, yeah, Steven's talking about nowadays how uh, people would live stream people getting attacked and then get attacked themselves and sort of live stream their own <laughs> zombification. Uh, I, I can't say that that wouldn't happen. It, it very well may. Romero kind of made that movie. It's called Diary of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I mean, today it would be like Blog of the Dead, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that, I mean, is interesting about, I think, the the way the news sort of trickles out and, and the exposition, like you were talking about, Kat, is that is that we, the audience, get that. And the characters get that to some degree. But there's also a lot of time where, like, the radio and TV are on when the characters are totally preoccupied. So there's no guarantee that they're even getting the, like we're getting it from the audience because we can hear and we're watching the characters do something, but we can still kind of hear what's going on the radio and stuff. But there's like Ben maybe like boarding up windows and stuff and who knows what he's hearing from the actual, you know, newscast or radio cast and that kind of thing too. So um, it is, it is like, it, it's interesting to think about like how much of that actually is, you know, diegetic from, you know, purposeful for the characters themselves versus totally like not quite, it's like third and a half wall breaking, right? Like it's not quite fourth wall, but it's like, it's only there for like the audience to hear really um, in right. some cases. Right, it lends kind of atmosphere and um, like Ashley was saying, context for the audience. But like, I think at the same time, what Dave's saying is true that like, you know, it's white noise to the characters. It's the last thing that they're focused on. Um, and it could be that they barely even hear it given that they're just trying to survive for another five minutes. Or arguing amongst themselves or whatever, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and as far, so I guess, I mean, we talked about the space radiation and, and brought up the idea of like, we're not, really sure how reliable it is i mean do like does that hold up like at, at the end of the day do you think like i mean we don't get any other explanation but like i guess it it's just an individual like do you think this is a plausible explanation like oh space radiation from the venus explorer like i don't know like there's still flat earthers today so i guess like people could still believe that or whatever but like it, you know it makes you wonder like like what would be a good explanation for that? Because I, I think even like in The Walking Dead, like there's still no real explanation for those zombies or whatever. They call them something different every week anyway. But, yeah. um, you know, that kind of thing. I think, so it is interesting. Like th there's somewhere, there's some zombie stories today where you do have a very clear explanation. Like it's a virus or it's, you know, radiation or something like that. Um, but like this one, I feel like even with the explanation we get, it it is still very sort of up in the air and and not to me at least personally like like I think Dave you said like you can either take it or leave it. it you don't have to necessarily believe. Um, I mean, whether or not it's it's true, I I think it, there's a truthiness to it. Like I I don't mind it as a 
if if that is the real explanation, um, I don't find that more implausible than anything else. Um, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was gonna say, especially in its day, but even today, I think there's just a general sense of experimenting with things you don't really understand and the kind of environmental impact of, um, yeah. you know, science going into uncharted territory and everything. Um, that, GMO that's sort foods. of believable. Hmm? GMO food is is the next zombie maker. There you go. That's my prediction. Yeah. yeah. We should totally make that movie. I'm in. Well, they they already call them like Franken foods and stuff. Like it's not that big of a leap, really. Right. Yeah. Um, right. I think it's a. I, I think, think it's, it's in the same wheelhouse as that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think um I think the 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 main purpose of it is just to provide people some explanation, because I think people as a whole tend to be comforted if they can explain something, even if that explanation is not particularly plausible. Um, I think that's what Romero's telling us. So, well, and, and, sorry, go oh, ahead. Sorry. Okay, so um, if I remember right, they reference in the film, like, yeah, the, this uh, space radiation, but they also kind of, the way it's presented, like, making it seem like oh, there was this space probe, and then when it landed, they destroyed it immediately, and, you know, this was disregarded or whatever, and so, I mean, it sounds to me like it's it's a sense of not only just wanting an explanation, but also wanting to find somebody to blame. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, and so... Um, I think I saw somewhere, and I don't, this might have actually been in, in one of your notes, so speak up if I'm stealing this from you, um, that there actually were, in the original script, other potential explanations uh, posited, and then they like cut some of those scenes out. Am I, did I see someone make that note, or did I read that somewhere? I'm trying to remember. That, um, that is true. I didn't make the note, uh, at least I don't think I did. Um, but that is true. They cut it out uh, because there was they felt it was just too slow. Uh, it was slowing down the pace of the film. So that they kept um, most of what they kept was the radio stuff. And the one scene, the one big scene is uh, the Washington, D.C. scene, um, which they kept because they went all the, all the way to D.C. to record it. So you have to keep that. Yeah, yeah, and no, I have the note here. It, it, it's Romero saying um, they had, he doesn't say what the other two were, but there were three potential explanations originally in the film, and they cut two of them, I think not realizing that leaving one would sort of imply to the audience that that was the definitive explanation, whereas he meant it to be more ambiguous, more that you could sort of take it or leave it. Um, yeah, so it, and it, it made it stronger than he originally intended. Yeah. And of course, you know, with any story, like, it's interesting to talk about the stuff that got cut out, right? Which is why Corey is doing all of the history of Middle Earth series, because that's like, there's more cut out of Lord of the Rings than was kept in it. But um, yeah, of course, ultimately, the story we got is, is the one we have. So it so it's interesting to think about that. But yeah, I guess uh, I was just trying to remember what, what exactly had happened there. And, and yeah. Um, so Sarah is saying uh, that there's a ex that that an explanation for the story isn't really that important, um, and that the message is about how we treat each other, which I think is a good segue. 
because as Kat said, we're cut off. So I'm going to give my two-minute Cabin in the Woods spiel, because this is, as Joss Whedon says in the visual companion to Cabin in the Woods, um, that Night of the Living Dead is, of course, the Ur movie of those being trapped. And this sort of, in addition to defining zombie movies, sort of defines that whole idea of a cabin. I mean, it's not real woodsy, but it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, the closest thing nearby is a cemetery. and at least from this picture, there's not a whole lot of other things. I mean, there's a few trees, maybe not enough to call it a woods, but um, yeah, just that idea of being out and trapped and, you know, sort of isolated in this place. And in in my in my cabin in the woods paper, I present, I posit the thesis in which um, there's sort of three elements to the cabin scenario. Uh, one being that remote location that separates the characters uh, from society. Um, to the uh, man-made structure, such as a cabin or a house or whatever, a, a farmhouse here, they call it, um, that sort of protects people from that wilderness and isolation, which I, I always find that dichotomy kind of interesting. It's like, you want to get out away from society, but you still want to have like some semblance of society and civilization, you know, protecting you from the outdoors and the wilderness. Um, and then this sort of monstrous threat and, and oftentimes uh, man-made uh, monstrous threat. Although I guess if this is a virus from outer space or a radiation from outer space, is it man-made? Is or is the man-made element the fact that like the you know uh, probe or whatever it is brought it back? Like is that what it is? Like you're interfering in places you shouldn't be, and so you know by doing so you're bringing back this virus or whatever. Um, Anyway, so all of that to say that like those three elements together, uh, I contend th uh, that th those are what provides that really character focal point. And I think I think we uh, well, I'll speak for myself. I agree with Sarah that like it really is about the characters here. And so um, let's get into the characters uh, because there's some great ones in this uh, film. I mean. How can you not like Ben, right? Like, if you don't, then feel free to speak up and tell me how. But I, <laughs> I personally don't understand how you couldn't. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't know whose notes um, in particular these were, but I'll throw it out to the group here. What are your, what are your thoughts on, on just characters in general? It doesn't have to be Ben, but any of them you could start with if you wanna sort of talk about uh, how they interact and all of that. I liked um, one of the things that I, I didn't really pay much attention to and then thought more about it on, on the second time I watched um, this film was that, um, I mean, this is late 60s and nobody's commenting on any kind of racial tension or anything like that in the film. Um, it's like any kind of racial uh, or excuse me, race, nah, can't talk tonight racial um, issues are kind of have been shoved aside because we're trying not to die. Um, and Ben is clearly the most capable person <laughs> in the cabin. That's interesting. I wonder, I wonder though if there is much shoved aside as shoved underneath. Like, mm. I feel like there's tension. It's just largely sort of unspoken. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah I mean, that's what I was meaning, sorry, that it was not um, right. explicitly referenced. Right, right. 
And I feel like, I mean, Mr. Cooper kind of seems like he would argue with anybody, but at the same time, you can't help but feel racial tension in their their arguments to each other and the kind of struggle for uh, who's going to dominate this scenario. It's it's interesting how how that plays out as well, since um, the the role did not was not explicitly written to have a black man be the lead. Uh, that just kind of happened because Dwayne Jones is an awesome actor. And he was, it, li, Romero literally says he was the best actor that they knew uh, in their friend group. So he got the lead. That was basically how he was cast. And um, uh, so all of that, all of that um, tension that's kind of that, I love the way you put it, that's pushed underneath, um, I think was, is, is just kind of, brought in as a as a literal subtext because it literally wasn't in the text like it's all uh based on the way that the characters were portrayed and and so on and um and i think Dwayne jones just brought so much to that role um i think originally the he was supposed to be a truck driver and kind of like a gruff guy or whatever and and Dwayne really plays him you know very intellectual i mean i think in real life Dwayne jones uh taught uh at uh, nyu or some universities acting and, and various other things a very intellectual guy he brought a lot of that uh to the character a lot of um uh, uh you know uh, highbrow diction or whatever in the way in which he speaks and um uh and i think as a consequence um uh i forget the gentleman's name but the guy who plays mr cooper actually had to play his character kind of opposite to that um so he he because of Dwayne Jones's performance made made Mr. Cooper a lot more kind of like the angry white guy than he might have otherwise played him in uh you know with different casting. So it's interesting how that kind of played out just based on on how the casting came out. And the I I've seen clips of or segments of the original shooting script and you know Ben's dialogue was written in sort of very dialect heavy um kind of southern uh working class draw and everything so you know there was a very deliberate decision on the actor's part to keep the lines but say them as he would say them um which is you know kind of subverts your expectations um mike moore in the chat is saying that our characters in the zombie movies purposely written to be two-dimensional um that's an interesting premise i mean i i kind of see there's a point there in that um I think the character comes through in performance. It's not so much in dialogue or or in the story. You know, we don't really find out much about these people. Um, it's not like we get huge backstories for them. Um, we get a couple monologues, but for the most part, the the dialogues are all very practical. It's you know just related to the kind of survival of the situation. Um, so maybe there is something to the idea that. Who kind of cares what your background is and where you came from? If we're stuck in this room together and we have to survive, then we don't really have the luxury of getting to know these people very well. Um, so then it's kind of like if you're going to have interesting characters, it's all to me down to the actors to do that sort of non-verbally and in performance. Um, you know, not necessarily just leaning on the script, but but putting in little clues and nuances about who they are that's beyond just the confines of this hour and a half movie. And, and yeah. I think that's that's part of, oh, sorry, real quick. Um, I think that's part of what the, the genre brings as well in in uh, to, to things like moral question, uh, 
moral questions and and the question of character um character meaning like their their virtue or whatever as a as an individual um is that 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 stuff has to come out in terms of their actions right because that's just the nature of the story is such that that uh you come to to understand the character's motivations and and whether they're good or bad or moral or immoral or ethical or not based on what they do rather than what they say i think too like this is not a film that you can watch and play on your phone um it's not a film you can watch and you know play on your laptop while you're watching it um, because if you're only hearing the dialogue you're really only getting half the story because um, there, there's not like a I mean there's dialogue but it's not like everything's being explained with words you, you do have to watch the body language you do have to watch what's going on in the background um, you do have to watch how the characters are physically interacting with each other um, you can't just listen to it. Yeah, and I would, I would push back on on the characters, at least in this particular film. I mean, I'm not going to make a broad sweeping statement about all zombie films, but uh, I don't know that I agree that the characters in this film are are two dimensional, or at least that all of them are. I mean, I think we actually find out quite a bit about you know, some of them. Um, and there's there's an idea that when you're sort of under pressure or under stress, you, you become more you than any other time, you know, of your life. Like there's, there's a point at which sort of when, and I think this is why I'm so fascinated by cabin scenarios is because when you're sort of like at your worst moment or, you know, most terrified or most uh, you know, under stress, like you can't help be but anything but you. There might be other times where you can, you know, try to be something you're not or, or maybe sort of, you know, pretend or, or you know, fake out. But like, you know, Ben's going to be Ben as as much Ben as he can be, you know, in in that moment when he's trying to survive. And and we see with him that it's I mean, I, I see at least, and, and feel free to disagree, but you know, we see with him that it's it's not just like him. He's not just out for himself or his own family. I mean, he's he's by himself, um, but he's actively trying to like help everyone in the situation and has that attitude of like, the only way any of us make it out is if you know we all work together and, and make it out. And then you you know you contrast that with the other characters who, um, you know, like Barbara, who just sort of like completely has a breakdown um and i mean i like in today's terms i guess we would call her you know she's she's triggered or you know whatever like she just has this you know uh i mean it's a legitimate assault on her i mean like there's reasons why she goes into sort of her almost catatonic state at times but you know that's her that like she just can't handle sort of like this event in the same way and and i mean there's that's true of real people too. Like there are people who, when faced with a with, with a situation, are going to go into full on. Okay, like let's figure this out and let's try to get you know everyone to safety and do all that. And then there's going to people be the people who sit there. There's going to be the people who are like you know no, I'm going to do what's best for me and my family and you know screw you and whatever you're going to do. And so I don't I don't think that makes someone two dimensional. I think it looks at the situation and 
you know, shows that in this very terrifying, unknown, you know, situation of people acting, you know, the, these creatures acting completely different than what you would expect normal people to act. You know, it just brings out, it brings out maybe the, the foremost qualities that you have, but I don't, I don't think that's a two dimensional quality. I think that just means that it's, it's, uh, you know, your, your primary uh, personality and, and the thing that you sort of default to. Well, and it's interesting to what you were saying about uh, Ben's sort of emphasis on the on the group and the community and and working to save everybody, not just himself. Um, in light of that monologue that he gives about kind of when he realized there was this zombie apocalypse going on, and it's all it emphasizes his isolation and the fact that he was sort of the only one who got out of. Um, wherever he was, I don't even remember, um, but kind of driving away from the house being, you know, kind of looking back at all the people he was leaving behind and, and the way he describes them, allowing him to drive over them like bugs and everything. Um, so, it, it, which kind of makes his commitment to serving the group all the more impressive because it's not necessarily reciprocated. Um, it's something that kind of, seems to come to him naturally um, to fight for the group, even if it's not necessarily fighting for him. I think there's a nice mix. Um, maybe we should go to the next slide, because if we're starting to talk about some of the other characters, oh, uh, I think I there's did a nice- Really yeah, quickly though, just on, only because it's on that last slide, um, I did just want to point out Jordan Peele's um, sort of you know reference to this, um, who directed Get Out, which, is a really interesting movie, especially I think if you kind of pair it up with this one and him kind of saying that that was, this was an inspiration for that. Um, the endings are not the same, but I, it's for sure there are references to this movie in sort of the way that Get Out ends and the whole kind of conception of um, using horror to talk about race and everything. Um, so, you know, I just thought that was worth pointing out if people haven't seen that movie, that's one they should check out. And just the idea of this kind of central, you know, black hero who their experiences seem to subliminally inform the way that they're able to survive this kind of situation. Um, like, you know, Jordan Peele suggests that Ben's experiences are one of the reasons why he's as competent as he is in this sort of situation, which is an interesting thing to think about. Mm. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Dave. Go ahead. No, no, that was a great point. So good, I forgot what I was going to talk about. The oh, um, no. <laughs> I got plenty. Um, <laughs> just so talking about the 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 cadre of characters. I mean, we've kind of we've talked talked a bit about how Ben can't help but but help other folks. And if it's, I thought it was interesting that the, the, the cast of characters that we have have a broad mix uh, of, of reactions to that, you know, um, either a desire to help or a desire actively to not help. Uh, so we've got, um, you know, Ben as a pro in the pro help camp. We've got Tom in the pro help camp, you know, willing to, to, you know, do what he can do to help get the gas for the truck and that sort of thing. We've got Mr. Cooper on the other side where he's, you know, hanging out down in the cellar, hearing the screams of Barbara and not not caring, right? Not coming up to help. And then we've got the mix of, you know, his wife and and the other ladies. There's something to to say, I think, uh, 
uh, on gender about how none of the the women are particularly active. They're all kind of passive roles there. Um, that's probably a missed opportunity, I think, in the film. And um, I'd be interested, not to put you guys on the spot, but I'd be interested to hear um, the lady's perspective on that. If, if you picked up on that and, and, uh, and if so, you know, what your reaction was to it. I don't think I noticed it as much the first time, but I think I was also just, you know, trying to see the film for what it was. Um, when I saw it in the theater um, last month, I, uh, I I did definitely notice it more. Um, I, I remembered, because it had been several years uh, in between viewings, um, I remember getting really frustrated with Barbara. Like, I understand that she is freaked out because she got chased. Um, and the guy killed her brother. That's understandably, but I, 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 at the same time, like, you know, it's like, if you don't, you know, pull yourself together, you're going to die. You need to, you need to focus. And so, I don't know, maybe that's just my personality. Like, mm -hmm. that's how I deal with extreme stress is, you know, try to focus on one thing. Um, but there was that, um, uh, Mrs. Cooper, I thought of, of the three ladies was probably the most uh, useful um, and had a little more um, development than uh, the other two gals. I don't know, uh, Kat may have a different opinion. No, I mean, I did kind of notice the trend. And I think with things like this, what I kind of always want is not for any particular character to act a certain way or not act a mm -hmm. certain way. It's like you want the same kind of spectrum you get in anything else. So, um, oh. you know, if we kind of look at these um, main male characters, I think we have a wide variety of reactions, you know, from, you know, very selfish um, Mr. Cooper all the way to, you know, community focused Ben with Tom somewhere in the middle, like wants to help, but maybe not quite as competent. Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of maybe what is lacking sometimes with kind of groups of female characters is it's not necessarily a problem when they're weak or go into catatonic states. Um, but sometimes you wish there was as much variety with them as there is um, with the male characters. And I think that's something that, yeah, is probably less well-developed um, than it could have been. Um, and not that it's the only movie to have that be the case, even these days. So, um, but it, it's, it's, it's definitely noticeable. Mm -hmm. I mean, the little girl's a strong character. She definitely like, <laughs> so like it, it, they at least like, a, there's women zombies, you know, whatever. There's definitely um, some envelope pushing, you know, that the little girl is at the forefront of the goriest sequence in the whole movie um, mm, yeah. is, is kind of interesting and challenging, you know? So there's, there's certainly that. It's interesting, maybe totally irrelevant, but it's interesting that the little girl, um, we see her uh, munching on her dad, but apparently she just stabs her mother and doesn't actually eat her as far as we can tell. I, I don't think I'm mistaken on that point. Or has she eaten her already and has moved on to dad? Or I guess we don't know quite how much time has elapsed if she's had time to yeah. finish yet. Or like how Mom, like- Mom appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when do when do they reach their, you know, satiation point? Like, mm -hmm. 
is there is 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 the craving eternal or does there at some point they just like literally can't eat anymore I'll, that's a good I'll, question <laughs> <laughs> they seem to have an insatiable appetite you never see them say well i suppose like they must stop eating at some point right otherwise there would be no zombies like <laughs> right they just eat they eat until you're you've got bones and then you know they would it'd be like well, Ebola, they like they'd burn themselves out right yeah they don't attack each other right yeah <laughs> so yeah it's a so there's like a right is there a is there a stasis like um you know in in natural populations where uh you know the the predator and prey like sort of reach a a you know equilibrium where you know if the if the predators eat too much of the prey then the predators start to starve to death yeah. i need to I see more I oh, sorry I, I need to see uh more more zombie movies where zombies are sitting around uh picking their teeth uh, after a meal you know or you know wiping their mouths with a with a napkin well it is funny because i mean I guess, I, I mean, I could be wrong about this. I mean, Wa Walking Dead is probably the only story that I can think of off the top of my head where you see sort of like the long-term effects of a zombie mm -hmm. apocalypse. Um, others either, like it, it's usually, like like the, most movies are like the beginning of the story, right? Um, I guess some of the later living dead series does get into more of like the later you know elements of like what what happens when like the zombie apocalypse has been around for like several years or whatever but um yeah like like, like a lot of it 28 days later follow-ups right where it's like yeah. 28 weeks later and well yeah but like, weeks like you're still like at the beat like because even that like you get into like with 28 weeks later it's just like okay, it's just spread further. You know what I mean? Like, it's like 28 days later, it's like England, right? And like 28 weeks later, it's like, okay, well, now we're on the continent. Like, it's not like necessarily, I don't know, that it's just a few weeks later. <laughs> it's not like that much later, I guess. I'm thinking more like years, like decades or whatever. But um, I don't know, it was just a thought. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Maybe that does get into it, so... Anyway, we've wandered afar from what we were talking about as far as the characters go. Um, so yeah, so uh, someone had brought up earlier in the chat, um, I think it was Sarah, um, about the, so, so there's obviously some, you know, clear sort of social, uh, you know, racial and class distinctions between the characters here. Do we see a a class distinction between the zombies and the characters? Um, Sarah sort of posited that maybe this could be seen as a like a proletariat uprising against the sort of white collar toolless bourgeoisie, and I, I think that was sort of around when we we're talking about like some of these zombies do have sort of like tools or implements that they use. Is this like I don't know an agrarian revolt kind of thing? Um, can we see it in those sort of terms? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, what are your thoughts? Like, if, if we're talking, if going back to the idea that maybe there's sort of an allegory behind the whole uh, zombie, you know, uprising. Like, any any thoughts there from a class or social perspective? 
I think um, thinking about the zombies that we see in this film, um, I it doesn't jump out at me like uh, that there's an obvious interpretation of them as a proletariat as such. In, by which I mean, like, I know, for example, you see a nurse. Uh, I, I don't know that you see any zombies of color, uh, at least not particularly obvious ones. Um, so I don't think that's it's necessarily obvious that they're meant to be a working class horde uh, necessarily. Um, uh, I think maybe playing with that trope is a, possi is a possibility. Um, or... Uh, uh, or maybe just the idea of of not necessarily uh, explicit working class, but just the idea of um, of ideology infecting people, right? Um, so historically, yeah, we we have the example of communism where you know the proletariat is is radicalized and so on, but um, but in the broader sense of just the the question of ideology and how it spreads amongst a, po a population of humans, uh, there's definitely, I think, a, a something going on there in this film. Well, and it's notable that if anything, the, the area where you get the clearest sense of this being a kind of working class um, group of people is when it's the rescuers coming in at the end, when it's sort of mm -hmm. farmers sweeping the countryside and everything. Um, that's the one area where it seems like if anything, they're going for a specific, um, like class image or you know that this is clearly like the 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 locals um mm -hmm. you know i mean there are police mixed in there are reporters mixed in the military's mixed in but it's also like this is the people of this area are sort of mobilized to sweep the countryside and and neutralize the threat so it would be kind of i mean i guess you could do this but it would be interesting if I, it seems a little strange if they were going for that as both the zombies and the people who fight back against the zombies as well. Yeah, I, so one of the reasons I wanted to come back to this slide was um, one, so that we could see, because I think this is the only place where we really have like a picture of the sort of horde of zombies, but also like just in, the, you know, the image in the at the top in the middle and then the bottom right there of of the police and sort of the posse of, uh, you know, law enforcement and and I guess um, sort of deputized, you know, whatever farmers and and others who are kind of out there shooting the zombies. Like, there's a certain sense like where there's may there's maybe not too big of a difference. It's just kind of who's on the other end of the violence in mm -hmm. in those cases, right? Like, you know, the zombies are going after one group of people and and the the horde of of you know posse members is going after uh, a different group of people and and it's yeah there is a sort of like tribal feeling to to both of those scenes and and it just um with those sort of where you get the wide shots of the zombies and then you get the wide shots at the end of of the you know guys with guns going through the fields um there's a very, there's sort of a consonance between the two. Yeah, well, and for Ben, the end result's the same. So mm -hmm. at least mm -hmm. from his point of view, um, practically, well, yeah. in, in the end, there's 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 an equal danger represented there. One horde or another, right? I mean, it, it's the, uh, 
um, around election season, I saw this meme as I vote for, it was a picture of Saruman. It says, I vote for Mordor as I vote for Isengard or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, one horde or another. Given given that interpretation of the zombie horde versus the the horde of the of the cops uh, at the end, um, I think kind of leads into the question of which I think might be the next slide of is there does does it matter like at the end of the day it, is there a significant difference between being killed by the zombies versus being killed by the cops at the end? And if it doesn't, does it matter? uh what they argued about the whole through half the movie um is it better to be in the cellar or is it better to be upstairs where the windows are um if you're gonna if you're gonna okay. get it in either case uh is that a significant difference well, ben did well this whole this whole premise of romero's that ben made a mistake that he there's a sort of narrative justice and that he pays for a poor decision um, not, I guess not to stay in the cellar. Is that the, um, that's, that him, yeah, that, is that the mistake? Again, he never really states exactly what he means when he says things. So I'm, yeah, I'm inferring that's, that the mistake here is he, you should have stayed in the cellar. Um, although I could see the same thing happening it. in this, I could see the same thing happening in the cellar. You know, they come yeah. in to sweep the house. He's hiding in there. They come, they see a movement. I'm not sure that anything he could have done could have necessarily prevented the situation. It's also not, I think, not obvious that the seller is more safe, right? I mean, that was that was Mr. Cooper's big uh, argument was that it's more it's more safe in the cellar. It's easier to defend. Yes, there's no escape route, but we're safer there, right? It was essentially his point. Whereas mm -hmm. Ben Ben's point was we want we need to have an escape route. We need to have access to communications. That, and so we get that better upstairs. So that, that's the, but it's not obvious, I think, uh, that Mr. Cooper's uh, premise is correct, that, that the seller is safer. I think a lot of people think that that's the case, but, um, but don't forget that, that his daughter was already bitten by a zombie, was ill and ultimately turned and ultimately killed people in the, in the cellar. Right. So, right. I mean, that was a, that was an accident waiting to happen, right? So. If everybody's down there in the cellar, everybody's hiding out, it's not obvious that they would have been safer in the cellar. Um, they might have been safer from outside, but there's an internal, uh, a latent internal um, danger that, that nobody saw right away. Yeah. Um, sort of going back to your question, Dave, about does it matter, <laughs> you know, who kills you if you're dead already, um, reminded me, of course, of a Heinlein quote. Uh, which is more around war than this, but I mean, you could look at this as maybe as a type of war um, from uh, To Sail Beyond the Sunset, where he says casualties are just as heavy in one war as in another because death comes to j just one to a customer. So, I mean, you know, uh, or maybe to put it in the more Whedon-y terms of, of Firefly and Serenity is, you know, everybody dies alone, right? Like there's there's no talking about, you know, tribalism when it's like ultimately you're you're dead if you're dead right like it doesn't matter who kills you in the end that's at least the, my interpretation the, 
I did not know the ending to this. So I was kind of shocked when it happened. I mean, I, I felt it coming. So I, I, you know, I had my spidey senses were out that like, this is not good. Um, but I didn't have it spoiled for me, for me necessarily. Um, but I feel like the most upsetting thing is not even just that they shoot him and he gets killed. It's this kind of image here of the implication that they sort of mutilate the body afterwards to kind of justify like retroactively, like maybe he was already dead or one of the zombies or, you know, there's this, there's this cover up that happens, um, which, you know, is that, I guess it might be better if we're picking better ways to die, it might be better to get shot in the head than eaten by a zombie. But, um, well, I, I don't... mean, at least the zombie's kind of straightforward about what it is, whereas, um, I don't know, there's something kind of especially upsetting about what, you know, the way these people react after they realize what they've done. Well, do they though? Do yeah, they realize yeah. what they've done? Because I, I didn't get, I don't get that sense at all. I, I don't know that they ever stopped to think that he wasn't a zombie. Because once they're dead, like, can you tell? I mean, that was the impl That's what I took from it was the kind of still images of them gathering around and kind of putting the meat hooks in and all that kind of thing before they burn the body. Um, just well, like I just thought that was to carry him to the pile. I didn't take that as like okay. intentional mutilation. That's but funny. Um, it's that's, it's yeah, to it's interpretation. Not it read to me. So mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I think either way, it's um, you know, it's just dehumanizing. Um, sure. You know, Ben could have either been dehumanized by becoming a zombie, but in the end, he's dehumanized by being shot. And then he's drug out with meat hooks. That I mean, you know, he's a piece of meat. Um, you know, there's there was no regard for any kind of humanity there. Um, and then, of course, you know, he's he's a black man. Like, you know, how you, that that fuels like the um, the unspoken um, racial tension in the film too. So there's just lots of. Like that that one uh, uh, screenshot you've got there, Curtis, is just incredibly powerful. Um, I mean, that looks like it was taken from a newspaper in 1968 that had nothing to do with a zombie movie, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, sure. Or, or it feels like a, a twist that could have been written this year. Um, so there is something very... Like this week. <laughs> this, exactly. Yeah. So there's yeah. something very kind of... Just the imagery is very upsetting. And it bears it bears noting that this film was released pretty shortly after Dr. King was assassinated as well. Um, mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I, I think they finished filming the the week after or the week prior, and they were shopping the film as that happened. Um, so this, you know, that that kind of uh, um, you know visual connection would would have been in the minds of anybody who saw the film. Mm -hmm. Mike says we're projecting race on our discussion. And I would say if you watch this movie and, and don't have thoughts about race, then you're probably missing a lot of the movie, so. Um, yeah. The, I, I found that, so um, Roger Ebert 
saw this in early 1969 and he wrote the the piece that he wrote isn't like a true review it's more of like an audience reaction review almost more than anything um he does kind of get into the very broad uh you know basics of of the plot of the film but talks more about like the audience and especially the young audience that sees uh that that was with him in the in the theater where he was watching it um and uh i don't know i just found this part of it really striking um when he got to sort of the end and just kind of described how silent and um whatever uh the film was and you know, again, like I wasn't around in the 60s or earlier to know sort of like how people went to uh, go see horror films and, and that kind of thing uh, contemporarily at the time. But but Ebert at least seemed to think that most horror films, and, and I'm sure he must be thinking here of, you know, like the big radioactive bug type of, you know, horror films that you get or things like, Godzilla or whatever, um, that there was more of like a, almost a joviality or, or fun aspect to it rather than true terror. I mean, you know, there might've also been some like scare points here, but just um, how different the feeling was in the theater, um, you know, of seeing uh, this sort of thing and, and especially with that ending um, and just sort of the silence and, and how it really turns, and, and I mean, I think this still holds up, and I think we've all sort of said it in one way or another, even tonight, how it how it does hold up in, in, in that you sort of get to this point in the film where you just can't, you know, feel anything other than sort of like a sense of loss and hopelessness for some of the characters. And I mean, it, it certainly isn't a happy ending, obviously, um, although that was apparently considered at one point. Um, so yeah, just I thought that was a particular, uh, particularly good quote from there. Um, it's out on his website. I mean, Ebert's obviously passed away, but all of his writings are there, so you can you can find that full review and read through it. But uh, yeah, did anyone else kind of come across any other contemporary sort of reactions to it um, in in kind of your research, or or were you thinking about um, that kind of stuff? Not in terms of its reception relative to similar films of the of the period. Um, I think there's probably some truth to that, but I don't know. To be honest, like I've seen I've seen other horror films from the '60s, and I don't know that I entirely agree with Ebert's characterization. I mean, maybe this film takes it a bit further than than others did, but uh, imagining a little girl going to you know any any number of of horror films from the 60s i would be a bit surprised um that it was a general consensus that you know uh those films were were appropriate in all cases for for kids i think it's probably overstating the case for for effect yeah and and he does point out that like like this is right on the cusp of uh, the Motion Picture Association um, implementing sort of the the early versions of their ratings guide. So like like this was this film was out before um, any kind of like rating system was there, uh, you know, or, or at least 
in its modern form, I don't know, maybe there were some kind of, but like theaters basically could let anyone go see anything. Yeah, I think it was in the early days. And I think the this film actually was, was one of the often cited reasons for why they needed it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, although, I mean, again, this is just based off of one thing. The way the way Ebert writes it, it sounds like it was already implemented or or going to be implemented, and when this film came out, and so so maybe it was an impetus to like further solidify, you know, that reason. But it sounded like things were already kind of in motion. I I don't know. I mean, that's just again based off the one thing I read about it. When I saw this in the theater. Um... It was it was an interesting experience. Um, on my right side, I had four or five teenagers that talked through the whole movie, laughed at it, made fun of it, or whatever. And then on my left, at the end of the film, the lady sitting next to me turned to her friend and was like, "Gosh, that was like so slow, and I just I just didn't like it." And that ending, eh, like you know, it just is very different um response to the film um and i'm like well no the 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 slowness i i like you know watching it again i didn't feel like it was slow maybe it's because i knew what was coming or whatever but the this perceived slowness um is what builds that dread and a lot of modern films don't really do that i think um hereditary is probably the the best horror film um in recent memory that, that does use that slow build of dread um which i thought made the movie far more effective than any you know you know body parts flying everywhere and blood spat splattered on the walls film like horror film um but yeah, it, it was just interesting to me to see, you know, some people were, you know, laughing at the effects and other people were like, this is way too slow. Um, interesting uh, modern <laughs> reaction or interpretation. Well, that's well, a, a Stephen Moffat quote I go back to a lot is, is that nothing dates more than pace. Um, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, that may or may not be true, but certainly, as you said, from the perception of the audience, certain people might be sensitive to maybe even more than the, you know, the black and white cinematography or the, or the characters or the effects. Um, that's the thing that feels most, or can sometimes feel the most dated to us, is that you, you're ready for that, pick up that pace. Mm -hmm. um, so it, you have to kind of, sink into it you know like it's it's a kind of about teaching yourself you know these different rhythms that don't move and flow in the way that we expect them to now yeah i mean i've had plenty of comments on some of the older movies we've watched this year just even in movie club about pacing and stuff and i i feel like this one is the exception i i like i like the pace actually of how it kind mm -hmm. of plays out so I mean there's also a sort of big gustibus about it right like people are going to have their preferences mm -hmm. um, this is going back to our 
you know, conversation a few minutes ago, but um, Penny just links the, the rest of the quote. So we have this quote from Dwayne Jones here about um, when he can, he was kind of talking Romero into sticking with the ending that the heroes um, never die. And so the double whammy of having a black hero um, who also gets killed at the end would be kind of worth doing. But the kind of rest of the quote is, um, he said, I convinced George that the black community would rather see me dead than saved after all that had gone on in a corny and symbolically confusing way. So is there something kind of, whether or not again, it's justified in terms of any mistakes been made, um, he's kind of suggesting that there's a fittingness to the ending. Like there's, after all this, there's sort of only one way, you know, you can end the narrative in a satisfying kind of, and it would, you know, sounds like he thinks it would have been sort of a cop out to not show the bleakness of that ending. I think it's interesting sometimes how um, how a piece of art can transcend the author's intention, and I think that this that's uh, I think this is a clear uh, situation where that's happened for the better of the of the art. Um, I think uh, uh, well we know the original screenplay. Uh, ben does die in the end, but he wasn't supposed to be black, so there wasn't and it's meant to be a racial uh, commentary built into the story. Um, mm -hmm. But yet it works on that level. Uh, it works on the level of the individual, like Ben's, you know, you can you can envision Ben paying for possible mistakes if, if you want to interpret it in that sense, it works. Um, uh, it just works on a, on a lot of levels and um, and I think that's just indicative of, of uh, um, you know, of how the, the film has come to transcend perhaps what it was originally intended to be. Well, and, and that's something I kept, as I kept bumping into these George Romero quotes, you know, quotes about the allegorical meaning, I kept wanting to say, George, I think you're confusing applicability with allegory. Like mm -hmm. what you mean by, sure. uh, by allegory, I think what he really means is um, maybe he had, an equal sign in mind. He may he might have had some one-to-one -one substitution, but without expressly stating that in the film, I think what we get is a very applicable film that you sense that there's multiple layers of meaning going on, but never at any point does the author tell you what it means. And you can kind of read it on, you know, five different levels at any given time, depending on you know, the lens you're looking through or what's going on in history or in the news today and all those sorts of things. All right, well, we have um, just about 15 minutes left. Any, I mean, anything else that we didn't cover already? I mean, I, I'm sure there's plenty we could continue talking about. Uh, little minutia, but from a at least from a higher level, is there any other major themes or things um, that you guys wanted to sort of cover? Um, two two minor things. Uh, if we got a few minutes, um, on uh, maybe maybe it's the next to the last slide. Um, the the cellar versus the windows. Yeah. So um, uh, one one thing I wanted to talk about quickly here. I mean, we've talked a bit about um, Ben's. Uh, you know whether Ben's decisions were the right ones or not, or um, or all of these questions. I'm curious if uh, what you guys think about whether or not um, looking at this film on its own as its own self-contained story um, 
changes that uh, uh, what what might be our our interpretation of the film uh, in comparison to what we have today, which is just the first film in a in a whole franchise of of films, which is which gives us a, a larger mythology. We know where where the story is going, at least in one possible timeline. And I'm I'm interested if if uh, you think that affects or might affect how you would interpret the actions of the characters, whether they made the right choices or they're not not the right choices, um, and just uh, uh, general thoughts on that. Good question. <laughs> I'll give I'm you. I'm trying give to you. I'm I'm trying to determine to what extent I feel like if this had been standalone and they didn't make sequels to it. Would the implication in the end have been that this was the end of the catastrophe? Um, mm. And it's that's a hard thing to imaginatively conceive of, given that we know there are multiple sequels. Yeah. So we're thinking of this as the first chapter of an ongoing struggle against, you know, the ghouls and everything. Um, but like, if you'd seen this in 1968 and got to that ending, would it have been well? It was a happy ending apart from the Ben element. Um, mm. I don't know. Like, it, I'm not sure if I can imagine my way into that or not. Well, I think the question of whether whether ca the catastrophe is ended at the end of the film, I think, is it bears directly on the question of whether Ben was right or Mr. Cooper was right about the cellar mm. versus upstairs. Uh, uh, there's a line that Tom um, says actually when they're talking about about you know to to go out and and try to get the gas for the truck, and you know Tom says uh, this is not like not a passing it's not like a passing wind, um, you know like this is right. we have to do something because this is gonna continuously go on right this is gonna get worse and we then you know uh, by the nature of what's happening have to act like it's not. We can't just sit here and let it pass us by because it's not going to pass us by. Um, so, if at the end of the film the catastrophe is resolved, it turns out that Tom was wrong about that, right? The catastrophe passed, and therefore you could have hung out in the cellar. You probably would have been all right. Definitely would have had to kill the little girl, but you know, you got to break a few eggs. Um, <laughs> however, if we know that ultimately the whole world's going to hell, maybe Ben was right. And you you need to make sure that you can get out of there and, and find somewhere somewhere else to go possibly or communicate with other survivors. And so I think that question of whether the c catastrophe resolves like directly affects the the moral and ethical decisions that are made in the film. Right, right. And and yeah. Stephen is pointing out that it's never explicitly stated one way or the other. I think if you if you choose one or the other, you have to sort of build your case based on you know, evidence within the text. There's no definitive statement that yes, our we have successfully, you know, purged the countryside of this virus. Um, I right, like we don't get a definitive news report that everything is no, fine now. No, we don't. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, so like, if if we're thinking of the space radiation explanation as being like that's what caused it and everything. Like you also think like, okay, the satellite passes by and goes on its merry way back out into space. And so maybe once it's gone and the radiation has gone with it, like things get resolved and there's never anything else. Or or you could be like, well, no, the radiation's here and 
you know, at least those who infected are still going to kind of be carrying on or whatever. Um, yeah, I, you could go either way. Um, Devra is saying uh, she hasn't seen any of the sequels and kind of feels like she could see it going either way. Although, so, I mean, it's really hard to, to think about it, though, in terms of that, because we do have sequels. And so, like, it's hard to ask the Schrodinger cat question when you know what happens after you open the box, right? Like, I have a, I have a question, because I've seen probably some of the sequels and not all of them, um, is, and I don't remember well enough, is it presented as these are new outbreaks of some kind, or is it like Walking Dead style, we're now into year 30 of an ongoing um, zombie apocalypse, or is it like something in between? It's more of the latter. Um, the timelines are not um, always, you know, yeah. greatly spread out. So, for example, the the next movie is called Dawn of the Dead. That basically takes place at exactly the same time, but just in a different place. Um, so there's a, the, there's a mixture with the shopping mall, right? Yeah, yeah. But also, the scales are very different in the so like so it's a shopping mall, right? So we're not just talking about a farmhouse. So there's like, there's other options as far as, you know, where you move. It's no longer like upstairs or downstairs. It's like, which store and how do we, you know, collect enough food to kind of stay. And then there's, you know, like the meta commentary on consumerism and, you know, right. the, the zombie hordes that walk the hallways of the mall, you know, beating down <laughs> the, the stores. And the zombie hordes that have yeah. to go to the mall, even right. after they've died. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but also Again, the, the applicability shifts to include a different kind of allegorical framework. It, mm -hmm. So as Dave said, like, it's like contemporary story wise is contemporary, but the film's also made 10 years later. <laughs> and so right. you also have this, you, you have the late seventies, early eighties mall culture influence that maybe isn't quite there in the 60s or at least is probably a little more nascent in the 60s so i feel like it's so also a little anachronism happening yeah um but then the third one what, what it's like a military compound or something right like yeah. it's uh, uh, a military base dead? yeah no day of the dead day of the dead thank you um oh and then land of the dead is the one where they start communicating with each other right um that's the last one i've seen because then there's like two more after that that have been made and then there's two more even still that are like we're in production or some some level of creation that haven't even been released so I, dave you mentioned diary um Diary of the Dead earlier. Have you seen the other one, Survival of the Dead? Uh, I haven't seen Survival. I've seen Up to Diary. Yeah. So I don't know. I the scope the scope changes, and right. you know the the. I do also feel like because of that, in some ways, I don't know. I don't know if everything works out this way. Sort of inversely but i feel like there's an inverse relationship of the scope and the sort of mythicness of it because i feel like one of the things and one of the reasons why this holds up so well and i think uh uh dawn of the dead holds up pretty well too but once you start getting past that i feel like it suffers from the, the franchise sort of suffers from its own success in the ways that many franchises do and so you 
you kind of lose that real introspectiveness of of getting down into what are just sort of the personal lives mm -hmm. of the individuals and and i do feel that that maybe so you know we were talking about two-dimensional characters earlier i do feel like in some of those later ones like you do start getting more of those two-dimensional characters because it's like you know the military captain or you know the whatever uh you know that's not it's not quite as focused and and honed in on just like a small core cast of people in the same mm -hmm. kind of way no there's something kind of like charmingly personal and mundane and kind of quaint about this movie especially when knowing all the you know i've seen how many zombie movies that were spawned by this one but you know then going back to sort of the progenitor of them is is really interesting to not see it as the hordes of you know zombies that you think of from dawn of the dead and walking dead and everything um um yeah steven says he he also wasn't uh, really aware of the sequels and found the ending ambiguous as well. So it sounds like, at least for first viewers, like you, you could definitely go either way. And I don't know if, Kat, it sounds like maybe you have the same <laughs> opinion. That was, to that was my sort of, again, without really being able to unknow what I know. Um, right. I think my, my gut reaction is that if I'd seen it at the time, I would have felt that ambiguity of, there's a possibility that this is over, but still that that tension of we don't really know for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and Stephen uh, is also anticipating uh, next week and with Black Friday and uh, you know the zombie <laughs> hordes and consumerism and saying this is still maybe a bit safer than that. I, yeah. I mean, we hear the stories every year. Yeah, of seeing the people yeah. who get trampled. Get trampled. Those are fast zombies. You know, well, I the toys oh the fat zombies focus at Toys R Us or wherever the cool gifts well, are. Not Toys R Us anymore, but yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm out of the loop. Now I so I've never seen any of the sequels, and I had, honestly I had forgotten there were actual sequels, and I didn't have any contacts for them. I did know about the one in the mall, and that that was the only thing I knew, but I didn't know how if they were more like the Halloween films, where it, was, it essentially amounts to a choose your own adventure <laughs> flow chart of, you know, which ones do you consider canon or which ones do you like the best or whatever. Um, but to answer your original question, Dave, is it, do we stay up here? Do we go into the cellar? I don't know that I would have done anything differently than what Ben did. Like, you know, yes, having the means of escape and means of communication, uh, getting information is good. Um, but, you know, at the same time, he got backed into a corner or, or a cellar, rather. You know, there was no getting out. So, you know, that was the only place left to go. Um, yeah, I, th I think that that's, a, that's an interesting question. And, um, you know, especially now thinking about it in terms of, well, what came after? Well, on that note, uh, I think we are good to end here. So don't forget that 
in uh, just about a month. We, on December 13th, we are going to be talking about uh, Fantastic Beasts, Crimes of the Grindelwald, and uh, we'll be announcing then what our 2019 schedule looks like. So if nothing else, at least come for that, but also you can stay for the fun discussion as well. So thank you, everybody, and we'll see you at the next one. Bye. Thanks for coming. Bye. Bye.